Even on the Gregorian chant. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. And I'm Jolie. I'm Emily. Thanks for coming. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, again, I'm Emily Harless. I am a first year PhD student. I'm studying late medieval mysticism and monstrosity and spatiality, mostly in England and one mystic in Sweden. Ooh, how is the Swedish mystic connected? So the Swedish mystic I'm looking at is St. Bridget of Sweden, and she was super influential in England during the 15th century. So the other mystics I'm looking at are really influenced by her work. It's quite a fascinating relationship. So how did you come to be doing this? How did you come to study this? It's a really long story. So I thought I was going to do early modern stuff. And when I started my master's here last year in medieval and early modern studies, I was on the early modern track. And about halfway through, I was like, like, no, the medieval stuff's way cooler. And I started looking into monster theory and how mystics are kind of monsters. They're humanized monsters or they're monstrous humans, whichever way you want to look at it. And so I was fortunate enough to start working with Anka Bernal, who indulged my curiosity and was super supportive of me moving forward from the project I did for my MA dissertation onto doing a broader thing for my PhD research. And yeah, my relationship with like Marjorie Kemp was the earliest mystic I really did any work on, started during my undergrad studies in the US and I thought I'd left her behind, but now we are gonna become very good friends for the next few years. Could you tell me a bit more about monster theory? Because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So monster theory is relatively new. It really gets its legs in the late 20th century, like the 90s, with Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's work. So monster theory is kind of, it's basically seven theses that Cohen creates that try and explain how a monster is created by a society. And so how it's uh, confined to certain spaces is really what I'm looking at. And how when it escapes those spaces, that's when it's terrifying. And there are elements of monstrosity that I disagree with with Cohen's work, but I respect, but for the purposes of what I I'm doing, I'm saying they don't have to look scary. They can just be scary. They disrupt what we think about the world and how it's supposed to function. So really anything that's monstrous is something that goes against our ideas of the normal and how human society functions and puts itself in the middle of things and makes us question why we're here, what we're doing, how we're supposed to be, what the limits of reality are. So you wouldn't normally associate saints with the ideas of monstrosity, with something being terrifying. So tell me more about how that works. Well, my idea is that the reason that we call them saints or we call them mystics is because they're monstrous, that we put them in this new category and say this person is a saint or a monster or a mystic because we don't know how to deal with them in our own categories of everyday life. And they're not just a man or a woman. They're something else. They're something more. And I think that the church creates these categories in order to control and understand these figures. You've chosen women to work with. Is there anything significant there? Because, you know, we think of women sometimes could be presented as monstrous, as operate in an other space. Is there something going on there as well? Absolutely. I thought about trying to incorporate a male mystic into this or a masculine mystic into this. And I realized it just didn't, it's not that it doesn't work, it's that it needs to be addressed on its own before they can come together. So maybe doing another project in the future on like, why are masculine mystics different from female mystics? 
because I looked at Richard Rolla a little bit and just saw that he's able to operate in society and move through society uninterrupted in a much more a fluid way. He works within side of the structures and he's in the hierarchy in a way that is elevated above women. And so women being beneath men, but then subverting their power to go directly to God is part of what makes them monstrous, that they're not going through the priests to speak to God. They actually, Marjorie Kemp specifically, tells a priest that he is forgiven by God, which is not allowed. But he asks her for that. Will you go to God on my behalf and ask him if I'm forgiven? And she goes and brings him back the news. But that's the kind of thing that a woman does. She goes past the male and goes straight to God in a way that's just not allowed. And so I want to look at that first and then maybe do some masculine stuff later on. And how does space fit into it? So space was another way of narrowing everything down. I went to that because Marjorie Kemp specifically goes on a lot of pilgrimages and also a lot of her disruptive behavior, because her narrative is quite different, but a lot of her disruptive behavior is taking place in specific spaces and also deals with her moving across time in her story. So she goes to meet Saint Anne and the Virgin Mary in person and is there for the birth of Christ in her story. And as a mystic, like this is all supposed to be completely legitimate. It's not that she's having some hallucination, it's that this is her mystical experience that she was granted by God. So yeah, that was how space came into it. And I started looking at theories of space and how we construct space or how we can deconstruct space. We reproduce space over time and why we do that. So I've looked at the books and the manuscripts as types of spaces and how putting herself into Marjorie Kemp, putting herself into the book of Marjorie Kemp creates this sort of relic almost that she's able, she's transported herself across space and time in her story. And now through her book, her creation of that book, she's able to do that for the rest of time, theoretically. She's not confined to that space, which means that she can come back and disrupt society over and over again, which is another part of monster theory, is that the monster always comes back. And so through the use of space, we see how they move across time. And when I think of the idea of space, the theory of space being both place and time, when you think about how she's able to come from 15th century all the way to us today and be reread and disrupt new groups of people and be used by especially the 20th century feminist movements, that she really is used to disrupt modern hierarchies. And so she continues to be a monster across time through the transportation in her book, this physical manifestation of her life. So it tells us a lot actually about how women can dis be disruptive mm -hmm. and disrupt patriarchal structures, even though she's operating in a completely different time to ours. So how did the feminist movement use her in the 20th century? That that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. So that was something that I got into at the end of my, my MA work and I want to do way more with soon. But looking at the way that 20th century feminists used her actually you see the scholarship on her go from you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, not much is going on. Late 80s, early 90s, she really takes off because women are looking at how she's able to use her voice, claim her voice and an authority in her narrative. And this is before a lot of work is done on the actual authorship of her work. But they're able to use, she's able to use her voice and people reuse her voice like these feminists do to say that women don't need male authority to get them to navigate through spaces. They don't need male authority to speak for themselves for medical reasons and things like that. The feminists look at her as almost a prototype of the feminist. And it's part of the reason I think of her as kind of early modern is that she's almost a modern woman and that she's saying, I don't need my husband to lead me on pilgrimage or go with me on pilgrimage. I'm gonna go by myself. Yeah, so she's really, really fascinating in that way. And I think that's why modern feminists have used her is because 
her sexuality as well is a huge part of it. She claims her sexuality and puts it in her book in quite a scandalous way sometimes. And I think that was just something that spoke to modern feminists a lot. Uh, a lot of the scholarship they did, I don't necessarily disagree with, but I'd like to do something new with now because her sexuality was such a focal point for so long for those feminists. And the other thing I noticed, you were talking about her mystical experiences, that she's actually networking with the the primary women in the biblical story. Yeah. So is she, she also sort of highlighting the stories of women in the past and and bringing them into the present and giving them more space. Yeah, absolutely. So with her encounter with St. Anne, um, that was, she gives herself a lot of authority through that story, but she also highlights how significant the role of not just the mother Virgin Mary, but St. Anne was in the birth of Christ and how these women are really just like the primary focus for the first part of her encounter with the past in her book. So she encounters Christ in the story, but Christ then allows her to be transported to this distant past. And St. Anne and the Virgin Mary both validate her experience and tell her that she is worthy of serving them and serving Christ. They want her there as their servant during Christ's birth. And so she, she uses their voices more to validate herself. But in doing so, she authorizes this past. She says, this is all true. It really happened. It was there. I saw it. I didn't just see it. I helped. And because they think that I'm worthy, you too should think I'm worthy. That's really cool. Like goes both ways, sort of authority kind of thing. How is she received at the time? Okay, well, it's really hard to know based on her story, because all we have about how she's received is what she tells us in the book. In her story, she's loved and hated by different groups. She's accused of being a lollard. She's accused of being a heretic in various ways. But when she's accused of heresy, sometimes they, she asks, what have I done? And they can't really say what she's done. They just know that she's done something wrong. And really, it seems like what she's done wrong is be a woman and take ownership of her body and take ownership of her spiritual life and uh, subvert this hierarchy that she's supposed to fall into as a housewife. That's really where she's supposed to be. Um, she has a family. She has allegedly 14 children, although we don't know how many of those children lived any length of their life. Possibly one son who made it to adulthood, if that's who one of her scribes is, but I'm going off. Tell us a little bit about her ordinary life. Clearly she's a really important figure to you right now. Yeah, so her ordinary life is in like, what did she do every day? Yes, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, if we recognize her as a saint and she's having these... She's not a saint. Oh, she's, she's not. She's no. not. She's saint having, Bridget is, but she's not. But she's a mystic. Mm -hmm, yeah. Could you tell us the difference? Okay, so Saint Bridget is a saint of the Catholic Church. Marjorie Kemp is a secondary mystic, which is really like, I don't like calling her that, but a lot of scholars see her as like a secondary kind of figure because it's questionable how legitimate her experiences were because she's not like Julian of Norwich is confined and spends her life in a church with a priest helping her write down her, her revelations. Marjorie lives her whole life out in the world and then at the end of her life says, God wants me to write my story so I'm going to find someone to help me do it. And that was in her 60s. So she lives this whole life off the record. We don't have any other records of her earlier than that, just what she has to tell us. Her ordinary life, which I'll get back to your question, she was many things. She was a mother. She was a Brewster for a while. And her local community was a disruptive force, but then also like went across Europe to go on pilgrimage, goes to Jerusalem and is disruptive there. But again, there's no accounts of her life other than that. So most of her life is spent wandering around based on her story that she gives us. She's spent wandering around Europe, wandering around England, visiting different people and places and being just incredibly disruptive. 
But she wants you to know that. She's not shy about how much people don't like her. She causes a lot of problems. I like her already. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> One thing I do like is that I think we often, when we think of women who have these powerful visions, you know, we think of probably a cliche, um, things like Joan of Arc and women who are set apart from the world. And yet she seems extra disruptive because she's actually engaging with normal life i mean it's sort of she's she's done the standard expected thing but she still has a voice she's still as you say she's being really disruptive it's extra disruptive because she's just you know living a relatively ordinary life and yet having these really profound experiences and then saying damn it i'm going to talk about it as yeah. well yeah she's really fascinating not just how she speaks but also how she clothes herself which is something that a lot of people think is really cool about her is that she having all these children decides that she's going to dress herself in all white which is not allowed you can't do that but she does it to signify that she feels as though she is a virgin in the eyes of of god but that's one problem that she has in the, a lot of these encounters with members of the church is that she's wearing all white that's not allowed. That's not just not allowed for like a woman who's outside of any order. That's not allowed in some sects of, of monks. Like you can't just wear all white. It's undyed wool. So she, she uses different forms of speech, which clothing is speech, fashion is speech, as a way to, to disrupt and constantly be disrupting. Even if she's not speaking, people just look at her and go, you're not right. Why are you dressed that way? Why are you doing this? And some people like to call her crazy and some people try to retroactively diagnose her, which is really problematic. And I think the ethics of that are quite quite problematic. I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, there's lots of things about her that she, she marks herself out as constantly against the norm. Like she scars her skin so that even when she's nude, you can see that there's something that's happened to her. Like she bites her hand, which is some research that I've been working on as well. She bites her hand and says it was seen for the rest of her life when she, in her earliest days, is having a fit, some sort of fit during a battle with demons in her spiritual life. And during this battle, she bites herself and scratches at her chest and said that she would do more if she could. But she's not just speaking in a way that she shouldn't, not just writing about her life in a way she shouldn't, but she's clothing herself and scarring her body in a way that is just constantly disruptive. In this context, I was really thinking about the relationship between religion and magic and something that I guess Jolie would have very strong opinions on. Thinking about where the line is in terms of communication with the divine and especially unauthorised communication with the divine. Communication with the divine that people around you don't recognise necessarily as being about organised religion. Just for background, I do ancient magic, so... Oh, um, okay, cool. I, and it's one of those difficult areas where, you know, we're just going through a phase of saying, oh, yes, I study ancient magic. We don't call it magic. <laughs> so one of the things that comes out of magical practice is, and for a long time, it was considered to be illegitimate and fringe practice and what witches and these ritual experts did who lived outside of normal society. But... What you were actually saying, I was really struck by because some of the work that I've been doing with more figurines of what are called beneficent demons and they're, they're women and they're just women sat in a, what's called an orans posture. So they're in a prayer posture and the way that they're dressed and how significant that has been. And some of my research has been looking at sort of hairstyles and 
how important it was to dress if you were going to leave a vote of, of yourself or of a, of a demon to act on your behalf. Of course, I'm working on an area where demons were simply beneficent spirits that helped and supported people. They, In your period, they've moved on to become monsters and horrific mm-hmm. beings that are that operate against the will of God. Um, so I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but and I think I find that contrast because the, the little figurines also wear white and they, they're very dressed up. They have fabulous Egyptian makeup, but they wear Roman hairstyles. So they're also quite they're strangely revolutionary. And I was just struck by how we haven't thought about it. And there's not much research being done on it. But the power of dress and mm. fashion in a religious context, either in a disruptive context, you know, when you think about witch costumes, we've just come through Halloween. Everyone's mm. been dressing up, wearing the hats and everything and just how powerful that can be if you want to kind of make some kind of a big religious statement you know wear the clothing <laughs> yeah and she's like really mi- marjorie's really mindful of not just religious statements but also social statements because she feels as though she's married below her class and she has a lot to say about that and she talks about how she would like to wear all of these fancy clothes but she's not allowed to because she's married to this man who puts her in a position where she's not allowed to dress that way anymore so what does she do she dresses in all white which is supposed to be very religious and pious, but she's still not allowed to do that. So she's not going to go against her husband in that way, but she will go against him and ask for a vow of chastity from him and all of these things and uses her clothing to show the world that although I'm a married woman, I do not engage in that activity with my husband. Yeah, all these different ways that she uses her body and her clothes to signify, like, I'm not I'm not owned by anyone. Uh, only God can tell me what to do, and he speaks directly to me. And so even the priest can't tell me how to behave. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the other personalities that you're working on? Yeah, so uh, Julian of Norwich and St. Bridget of Sweden. Uh, Julian actually is probably the tamest of them, and I think that that probably comes from how, uh, and this is just early days stuff, I've done a little bit of work on her in the past, but she was quite well controlled because she was, you know, being supervised by a priest, and her writings were written through that supervision, and her revelations were filtered through this masculine voice who was working on behalf of the church. And so as far as, like, how revolutionary she was in the same way that Marjorie was, they're, they're super different figures. And the reason I'm really looking at Julian and St. Bridget is because they influence Marjorie so heavily, but also not really in the way you'd expect. Like, she doesn't follow their example very much, but she uses their voice and their authorization to give her power. So that's really how I'm looking at them. It's almost like Marjorie is, like, my first lady, and these are her, like, supporting cast members. St. Bridget of Sweden, well, we... Brigantine nuns, the order that she uh, founds. And she... uh, after her life is then like very well respected by the Catholic Church because she made some great predictions and her revelations that come to be very beneficial to the Catholic Church over time. And so, uh, of course, keep, I want to keep in mind that like Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich aren't held up in the same way by the Catholic Church. And actually, Julian and Marjorie are probably more influential for Anglicans now, even though they were Catholic. They're very much English mystics, and they're very much revered by people who study English mystics. St. Bridget is really just so influential on them because her works come to England in the 15th century and so we know that people were reading and writing about her. She was disruptive as well but not so extremely as far as we can be aware because her writings were so different. That's one thing that I'm working with is that 
Marjorie's writing of her life, which is like possibly, we have discussions about the earliest autobiography by a woman, is very different from the revelations that Julian and St. Bridget put out. So we have really different information on the three of them and how they think of themselves. It's interesting, though, that rather than picking male voices to give her sense herself a sense of authority she's actually picked all the female voices yeah. as well not just not just the ones the legendary ones but the actual saints that that she knows of people who lived mm-hmm. and that's a really interesting take that she hasn't tried to adopt um, a male authority anywhere it seems like she's quite happy to have a relationship with god but she isn't saying god's giving me authority mm-hmm. it's no all of these women mm-hmm. have given me authority lots of powerful women around marjorie and <coughs> she really likes to invoke them and say these are women who were also given uh, their voice by god to speak for him they speak he speaks through them many times their mystical experiences and they give me authority so one thing that marjorie does that's really interesting is that she claims that she's going to fulfill a prophecy that St. Bridget makes. She doesn't. It's about an earthquake that's supposed to happen in England that doesn't happen in the period that she's alive, so it doesn't come true, but she's trying to have this authority of these figures passed on to her. She's inheriting something from these powerful, mystical women. So yeah, it's a really, I guess, girl power kind of relationship they have going on, even though it's a one-way relationship. Uh, Although Marjorie does go visit Julian in Norwich, but we only know that through Marjorie's writing about it, so we don't really know what Julian thought of her. We know what Marjorie says Julian thought of her, which means that, yeah, her saying that she liked her, Julian saying, oh, I, I, I validate what you're doing and I like you, that's, that could be absolutely nothing. It could be crap. But Marjorie wants you to think it's true. It's, again, quite interesting, the fact that rather than seeing her as a competition, she sees Julian as potentially kind of a colleague. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's authorizing her. They're authorizing yeah. each other. It's really, it's quite interesting. It's, it's a cool little group we have going on. Well, it's two of them. Not really a group. A pair of them on the island. Yeah. You're just kind of settling into your PhD. What are your thoughts? What are your expectations? The biggest things you're looking forward to? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually, because I I do periodically like post in a blog that I have um, about things that I'm going through with my research. And so recently I've been finding that I'm very easily attracted to things that are like just in the periphery of what I'm doing that I really shouldn't be reading on too much, but I really want to because I can't look at this anymore. And so I've found myself getting a little bit distracted and sometimes having a hard time putting words on the page that are going to go anywhere. But I found like you just got to write them down. You just got to get it out of your system, indulge it for a little bit, and then put it away in that file of things that I'll do that later. It's never going to happen. But yeah, that's something I've come uh, to have some issue with recently. But overall, like, I'm really optimistic because I have so many great friends around me. Like, most of my friends are finishing up their PhDs. I met them during my MA. And so seeing, like, their final days and talking to them about the earliest days of their PhD research and seeing that I'm not alone and having all of these concerns about I'm losing track of what I'm trying to do right now because I'm just a bit distracted and nervous, they're able to really give me some good feedback about that. And so as far as, like, helping my mental health, that's been really, really useful to have that kind of support. Other things I'm worried about honestly it's just getting words on the page at this point words that'll stick just to have something to turn into the supervisor but I have a great supervisor she's super supportive and so when I go to her and go 
like I know this isn't the best thing I've ever done, but please just indulge me and read it. She's always great. And I know some students aren't so fortunate as to have someone who will look at their stuff every few weeks. I know some that are like, they want it at the end of the semester and they don't really want to see much before then. Whereas she's just like, whenever you want to send stuff, just give me a heads up and I'm happy to look at it, which is just stellar. She's incredible. Dr. Anka Burnell. I would also say about things that are on the periphery. A lot of the time, you just, you end up changing the focus of what you're doing. Mm -hmm and you shift towards the things that are on the periphery of what you're meant to be doing and those things turn out to be the actual focus so things sometimes change i, I i'm totally seeing that yeah. at this point i'm like i there i think that the things that are on the periphery that you are attracted to might be the thing you kind of want to do more because you found it through this thing that you're like okay i like this now but this strain of this thing is more interesting and I really can't let it go. So please, supervisor, will you let me go on this path for a little bit and, and see where it takes me. And if that's where you know my project ends up, then like, great. As long as at the end of the day, I've produced something worthwhile and that I'm proud of, we're all happy. Or yeah. it's an article or a postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had the same thing. I'm writing um, something that's very peripheral and you have to make it peripheral to your research. You can't just present or, or write an article on the centre of your research. And I'm just wandering off into the senses and drawing as a ritual act. And I'm discovering that no one's really looking at this at all. And I'm suddenly going, no, I want to do the physical act of drawing. Um, <laughs> so if anyone does have any good references on the physical act of drawing in a ritual context, anthropology, I would love to know more. But that's exactly as you get towards the end of your PhD, because that's where I am now, is you're starting to think about those sorts of things. Where do I go next? And it's then that if you've got a, a filing cabinet full of these things that you've just gone, I love this, but I can't go there yet, then you're just like, well, which one do I pick? <laughs> yeah, that's the optimistic way of looking at it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My recent example of doing something on the periphery is reading skin, like I mentioned earlier, in the book of Marjorie Kemp and looking at how she scarred herself. Like that's not going to make its way into the research I'm doing right now for my, for my thesis, most likely, but I've already got plans to hopefully present about it next year at a conference because I don't want to let it go. It's really fascinating. I already gave like a really short presentation on it and I want to do more and who knows where that'll go. In all of your research, we always ask if you have a funny story to tell about some of the work that you've been doing. So I'm sh it sounds like you've got an awful lot <laughs> to pull on. So would you like to tell us something about that? Well, actually, I, I have listened to the podcast, so I had something prepared. So just, I think it was two days ago. It's funny who you meet through these things and how your relationships with other scholars and other PhD students kind of take shape in the real world. And I was tagged on Twitter by someone I met through a talk that I gave on reading skin in the book of Marjorie Kent. And he referred to me and a group of other PhD students as the mystical blood squad. We're all people who have done some research on wounds and mystics. Some of them work on decapitation or just Christ wounds and mysticism. And it was just a fun little interaction that we all had because this led into us talking about how we were going to form a band called the mystical blood squad and what we all had to bring to this band that we were going to create. So that was just like a fun, you never know where these relationships are going to go. And like, it's a really small interaction, but it's a really fun one that's based around our work and so I just got a good laugh out of it. 
those people are future colleagues and yeah. that's really exciting. Yeah, and or I don't... alternatively, you just play the academy next year. Absolutely, <laughs> we have a whole good host of us. Some of, like I play a violin, some of them sing. Someone's gonna just take up guitar for the heck of it. Yeah, we're gonna have a great gig. We're gonna rock IMC, the International Medieval Congress. We're gonna go rock that next year. Water party. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's wild actually. I don't... Are you guys medievalists? Either of you? No. You do papyri, so no. What do you do? Um, early twentieth century. Okay, cool. IMC is a big party though. So I've heard. Yes. <laughs> I do talk, we do talk to you a lot heard. of medievalists. Okay, okay, good. Yes. Thank you very much for coming. It was lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for co-hosting, Jolie. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicon.